Well, again, thank you, Kyle, and the music team for leading us in those words. So encouraging that Jesus is indeed ours, and when all else fails, He remains. He's faithful, isn't He? That's good news. Well, our pastor is away this morning, and if you didn't notice, uh, ministering um, to a friend's church in Delaware, and uh, so it is my privilege to open God's Word with you. And for that, I invite you, without delay, to turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is where we'll be. So, not 1 Thessalonians 4, where we've been, but 1 Corinthians 4. Our text will be specifically that last paragraph. Uh, We're going to look at verses 14 through 21, a sermon that I have entitled, Essential Elements of Discipleship. Discipleship. Why discipleship? Well, as I was, just full disclosure, considering uh, what to preach this morning, well, by the way, that is one of the hardest things, right, for preachers to do, is just to decide even what to teach. Uh, I was caught between two passages, but as I talked with the other pastoral staff and elders, the consensus seems to be, seemed to be that in light of the season of our church, in light of Carrie's message last weekend in 1 Thessalonians 4, you remember, hopefully, in which he encouraged us to excel still more in our love for one another, and in light of the, in God's providence, the start of a new care group season, this particular topic of discipleship and relationships within the body of Christ seemed most appropriate. So, that's why 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 21, essential elements of discipleship. My my friends, perhaps you're not aware, but our church is growing Um, and and indicated by even some of the building projects and things around here, but not just physically buildings, but also people. And as God continues to see fit to bring new people here, I think a phrase that our elders have found ourselves sort of using and being accustomed to use is simply this, that we have a good problem on our hands, right? Maybe you've heard that. and Maybe you've heard that and asked, well, how is church growth, I mean, how is that a problem? (laughs) And granted, to be clear, it is a good problem. It is a good thing, but it also comes with it some difficulties, right? It is also a little bit of a problem, and, and not just because, in one sense, we're running out of places to put all the babies that you and I, I'll put myself, are having, but more significantly, because as we grow numerically, the reality is it just becomes all the more difficult to grow relationally, right? Not impossible, but there are obstacles, natural obstacles, just due to size and opportunity. Let's just be honest, the bigger the congregation, the easier it is to hide, to be lost in the shuffle, to fall through the cracks, to, or, or even to simply succumb to that tendency and temptation to have just cordial, sort of superficial relationships at a distance, right? The hello, how are you once a, once a week kind of relationship. 
So this morning, I want to address the topic of discipleship and relationships in the church. Specifically, how I want to do that, I want us to learn from the example of the Apostle Paul and how he approached relationships in the body of Christ. And I hope this to be really instructive for us. You see, I'm more and more amazed the longer I study and know Paul in the Scriptures, I, I, just, I just marvel at his ability to bring people close. Paul did not, we could say, have any superficial relationships. And that, what's more amazing to me about that is that you see, of all people, you think the Apostle Paul... Of all people, we might imagine a guy with such prolific influence, vast ministry, numbers, always traveling, itinerant ministry, this great missionary to multiple churches with all the people that God used him to influence, just practically practically speaking, right? And on a numbers basis, you could imagine that Paul, of anybody, would have had the excuse to, just, to forget a few names, right? <laughs> he would have been the one to be able to say, man, I'm just too busy to minister for a season and move on. But it's a remarkable to me. Have you ever noticed how many people and names, uh, as you read through his letters, he, he's mentioning specifically and thinking of and praying for and greeting at the end of his letters. The more I study Paul, I believe him to be a model for us of what we should be doing all the more than Twin City Bible Church as a church for one another. And this text just is um, one example of that that I want us to examine. So here in, in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul's going to demonstrate for us what Real, true, life-on-life, genuine Christian discipleship relationships should look like. This is what we must aspire to be in our relationships with one another. Now, for the sake of time, we, we won't read the text in its entirety up front here, but let me just, if you're not familiar or haven't been in 1 Corinthians, um, let me just give you a brief background to this particular context and letter, you see, unlike where we've been in Thessalonians, and unlike the Thessalonian church, who was, as Carrie has mentioned before, sort of a model ministry, right? Uh, Here in 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to perhaps one of the most problematic churches in the New Testament, a church with many difficulties, Paul had founded the church in Corinth on his second missionary journey in Acts chapter 18, and it was a church that he had spent, if you go and read that account, he had spent a considerable amount of time with these people. Um, and, and not only that, uh, we, we know, or at least can surmise, that this particular church would receive no less than a total of four letters from the Apostle Paul two of which we have in our Bibles. And still, you think, even with all of that apostolic investment, the church struggled. 
It was riddled with pride, immorality, and all kinds of factions and sins. In fact, of all the churches, again, that Paul discipled, we could argue that this one was the most stubborn in their sins, which, frankly, which is why the only reason why I'm telling you that in the front end of here this topic is it's such a good example to us because what we see Paul exemplifying here, he does for a people who are not very easy to love. (laughs) And so, he sweeps all of our excuses off the table in that one fell swoop, doesn't he? This section is so instructive for us, I think, precisely because we find here Paul's heart of discipleship on display. Listen, even for those with whom it was not easy, nor convenient, nor even immediately fruitful or rewarding. See, while we may have what we've deemed a good problem here in God's providence in this season of our church, Paul just had a problem. And still, he is an example to us. In spite of all the obstacles and challenges and temptations to just cut and run, to wash his hands of this difficult relationship and remain superficial with the church or pass them on to some other person, Paul did not, and we need to learn from that this morning. So, let us be discipled on this topic of discipleship by the Apostle Paul here. If you're taking notes, here's your outline for this morning. In this passage, Paul's going to demonstrate for us three essential elements. So, we'll see three, uh, three essential elements of Christian discipleship relationships. I'll just give them to you up front. It's really pretty simple. First, discipleship relationships involve instruction. Instruction, and we'll see that in verses 14 and 15. Discipleship relationships involve instruction, verses 14 and 15. Secondly, we'll see that discipleship relationships involve imitation. We'll see that in verses 16 and 17. So, imitation from 16 and 17. And then lastly, Uh, the largest section here, we'll see that discipleship relationships involve, at times, intervention. Intervention. And we'll notice that in verses 18 through 21. So, really pretty simple. Three I's, instruction, imitation, and intervention. So, let's walk through these. Notice first, look at the text here, discipleship relationships we learn from Paul's example involves instruction. Instruction. That's what discipleship is. Disciples are learners at the core. Look at verses 14 and 15. Notice what he says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish or literally instruct you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Now, stop right there for a moment. The emphasis in these two verses clearly is on Paul's instruction or admonition of the Corinthians. You see that in the verb that I pointed out to you, to admonish. It could also be translated, again, instruct 
But we see that also here in the context, uh, this reference to tutors. Now, that word for admonish, in other places it's translated to, to teach, but the word is really nutheteo. Uh, it's that Greek word that, where we get our English term nuthetic from, which having to do with the mind, and it really just means literally to place into the mind. That's what Paul's describing here, and it's this classic biblical counseling term, right? Uh, and so, right out of the gate, we just we can, in one sense, say and conclude here by Paul's example, this is what ought to characterize our relationships in the church. We should be constantly counseling one another. And in fact, he picks up the same term and uses it in Romans 15 verse 14 just to give you an idea of this corporate responsibility. Paul will say this is not just relegated to the job of pastors and teachers because he uses the same language and the very same verb to speak to the congregation, Romans 15, 14, Paul says that he's convinced there that the Roman Christians are, listen, filled with all knowledge and able also, the entire church, to admonish, there it is, one another, to instruct one another. Church, we ought to be able to, as Christians, do this for each other. That's, that's at the core of what these relationships are all about. It's, it's not just fun and games and fellowship. While that, all of that is indeed necessary and good, this is distinctive to relationships within the church. We're always talking about what we're learning. Haven't you noticed that about good relationships in the church? Paul will also use this same word and verb in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, again, as a corporate encouragement to everyone, he says there, we proclaim Christ, and then this, admonishing or instructing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Look, that is the essence of discipleship relationships. That's what we ought to be about here at Twin City. There's no discipleship without instruction. There's no discipleship without teaching and learning, without placing truth in one another's minds. I love what Mark Dever writes here, and he's got a little book, Nine Marks, called Discipling. It's a really good volume, not to pick it up. <clears throat> he says this on this point, at its core, discipling is teaching. Uh, we, we teach all the words that Jesus taught his disciples and all the words of the Bible. But you can hear the Great Commission in that, right? Which applies to every Christian. But I love what he says here at the end. He says this, look, interpersonally then, what does that mean for the church? Is that some formal classroom setting? Listen to what he says. <clears throat> Teaching occurs as people learn to have meaningful spiritual conversations with each other. I love that. Let me ask you, do you have that here in the body of Christ? Do you have those kinds of relationships where you're instructing and encouraging one another to learn the truth of God's Word and how it applies to life? Paul says you should. We should be teaching one another 
all the time sharing with one another what we're learning about Christ and His Word and the Christian life. And, and, and like I said, look, it doesn't have to be some formal classroom context. How do I know that? Because that's not how Paul paints this picture and this practice. Notice what we can learn from these two verses about how Paul approached these kinds of relationships. Notice first the manner of Paul's instruction to the Corinthians. Look at what he says. He doesn't say instruct or admonish like you would in a university classroom setting. That is what he says in verse 14. We see it in a contrast that he gives to us. I do not write these things to shame you, here's the contrast, but to admonish you, and here's how, as my beloved children. You see, that's really helpful. We find out here by Paul's example that Paul approached this element of instruction in discipleship relationships like family. In other words, Paul was not out to humiliate the Corinthians for what they didn't know. He didn't take the position of an impersonal, pompous university professor condescending to the ignorance of his students. Maybe some of you have experienced that before. No, rather, what does Paul say here, how he approached this relationship? Paul's instruction here was like the instruction of a loving parent towards his precious children. That's how we should be towards one another. Listen, church, did you, church is family. That's how these relationships are to be conducted. Do you view the church that way? Christian, is this your family? Is that how you relate to one another? And, and this analogy of family is so helpful even as we think about how we are to teach one another in the church because the Bible then is not silent, listen, about how teaching occurs in the family, right? All throughout Scripture, we're given passages that help us even understand, well, what does teaching and instruction in the home actually look like? Maybe you're thinking of certain texts like Deuteronomy 6, where teaching in the family, again, is not done so much formally, behind a pulpit, in a classroom setting. It's actually there in Deuteronomy 6, done throughout the milieu of life, right? It's woven into the everyday mundane routine as relationships, life on life happens, not just some formal class. It's when you rise up, when you go along the way, when you pillow your head. And and not only that, you think of, of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, where parents Paul will write there, especially to fathers, are another contrast to not provoke their children to anger, but rather, here's the picture, to bring them up, to rear them, to nurture them, to nourish them in the discipline, and here comes our word, and instruction or admonition of the Lord. Listen, that's how our relationships should be in the church. That's how teaching is done in a family context. And church, we're a family, not provoking one another, but nurturing. It's the same contrast here essentially in verse 14, not shaming, but counseling as a parent to a beloved child. So should our discipleship relationships be in the body of Christ. 
In other words, instruction involved in our relationships with one another should not be proud or condescending, but rather lovingly aimed at the spiritual growth of the other person. So, so let me ask you, is, is this how you approach your brothers and sisters here? Do you have any relationships like that? So discipleship instructs like family, but notice also not just the manner of Paul's instruction, but his motive as well. Look at what he says in verse 15. Why, yes, did Paul approach body life in this way? Notice, for or because he tells us, if, if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I, came, I became your father through the gospel. You see, with another contrast here, we learn from Paul's example that Paul sought to instruct the Corinthians because, here's why, he felt a personal responsibility for them. Do you feel that in the body of Christ? Personal responsibility. Notice here in verse 15, continuing the theme of parental instruction, Paul now points out to the Corinthians that he was different in one sense than all the other people who were trying to influence them and get their ear on an issue, right? He was different than them in that he had a personal investment. He had skin in the game. He took ownership. He had responsibility for them as a spiritual father. Now, you know, you go back and you study according to the book of Acts, Paul, as I said, was the one who founded the church there in Corinth. The way he puts it here is that in Christ Jesus, through the gospel, he literally birthed them. He begot them, begotten them, and therefore he had a special vested interest in them. But, but notice again the point of this contrast, though. It's deliberate. Paul contrasts himself here in verse 15 as their spiritual father with what he refers to as countless or myriads of tutors. Now, we, gotta, we have to explain that a little bit here to get the point because this is a practice, an ancient practice that we, uh, you know, probably we don't have really uh, today, though we can maybe relate to it in some of the conventions today. The word here for tutor, it's, it refers to the practice in Paul's day of assigning a child to a guardian or a nanny of sorts who would then be responsible for watching over that child's education until he was of age. And then once that child became of age, this tutor or guardian would then become obsolete and fade off the scene. Paul then picks up this metaphor, and he uses it uh, another place. If you're just taking notes, you don't have to turn there, but Galatians chapter 3. And just listen, because I think this is helpful just to highlight our point. In verses 24 and 25 of Galatians chapter 3, Paul uses this term to describe what our life was like under the law before Christ. Uh, let's, Let's just listen to what he says. Therefore, he says, the law has become our tutor, there's our word, to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But here's the point. 
that now that faith has come, listen to this language, we are no longer under a tutor. And so his whole point here is that there does come a time when a tutor is no longer needed. A tutor's influence ends. There's no more investment, no more influence. In other words, unlike parents, tutors are essentially hired for a short season, a time that will end. So you see what Paul's doing here in contrast those myriads of tutors. By the way, we have so many voices out there seeking to influence us, don't we? Just open your Facebook feed. But none of those are personal or taking responsibility to the people they're seeking to influence, right? Not like in the church. Not like we should be for one another. And that is Paul's point here. Notice his contrast is here saying that unlike those many tutors, He, as a spiritual parent, on the other hand, feels far more personally and permanently responsible for the Corinthians. You see, we may not be familiar with the cultural practice of this tutor or guardian, but it's essentially the difference between, maybe to borrow a, a contemporary analogy, a babysitter and a parent. There is a difference. Babysitters go home at the end of the night. Parents' influence, a parent's personal responsibility remains. And Paul is, by his example, telling us even, we could pull this out, that look, there is a personal responsibility for this discipleship kind of relationship in the church. So the question this morning is then, have have you ever felt this kind of personal responsibility for those in your sphere of influence. Do you, do you have anybody like that in this church that you feel that for and who feel that for you? That is how God designed the body of Christ. And again, let me just say, this is not just for pastors and elders. This is not just a responsibility laid on the shoulders of your leaders I think of Martin Luther um, writing in a day in the Reformation when ministry tended rather to be professionalized by Roman Catholic priests. He writes profoundly that the ministry of the Word belongs to all. And that, of course, one of the great marks of the Reformation was bringing back this teaching that we now recognize and refer to as the priesthood of all believers, not just some. And so, But even beyond that, listen, Colossians 3 verse 16 is even clearer and more authoritative. Paul would say there, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you in a corporate context, not just your leaders, but with all wisdom, teaching, and here it is, admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Church, this is what it looks like to see a culture of discipleship cultivated in a church. And beloved, you know, you, know, you know how you know when it's happening? When members of the body begin to take personal and loving responsibility for the growth of the rest of the body. This is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Again, another corporate command and context, speaking the truth in love, all of us, 
we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ from whom, listen to the language of inclusion here, the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. You, Christian, each individual disciple causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Friends, discipleship relationships involve mutual responsibility for loving instruction. That is the first element we see modeled for us here. But notice there's a second. Look at verses 16 and 17. Notice there's a second essential element that discipleship relationships must involve, not just instruction, but also imitation. Paul writes here, therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, now I want you to notice first here under this second essential element, I want you to notice the clear command in verse 16. Look at what Paul says, I exhort you, be imitators of me. You see, here we are reminded, like with many other things in life, uh, the Christian life is best learned not just by exhortation, but also by example. Do you know this? You know this to be true, don't you? Uh, the Paul uses the word here, uh, mimetes, which you can perhaps hear that word in our English that we derive uh, mimic from. Paul is saying, mimic me, imitate me. And even the verb Paul uses here for to, to exhort could, could also be translated to call or to come alongside. And so when you put those two elements together, you could even say Paul is telling the Corinthians to first get alongside him and then to mimic him, right? That's how it happens. That's discipleship. I love how I love how Mark Dever again puts it here. He says ultimately discipling involves living out the whole Christian life before others. He says we communicate not merely with our words but with our whole lives. And notice this last part though. Listen. Discipling is inviting others to imitate you, making your trust in Christ an example to be followed. And especially this last part, I love what he puts here. It requires you to be willing to be watched and then folding people into your life so that they actually do watch. Isn't that interesting? It, it's both, right? It's not just live an exemplary Christian life, but it's, but it's also then bringing others near so that they can watch that life. How powerful it can be to have a good example. Again, you know this practically, don't you? Much more effective it is at times for someone to show you rather than to simply tell you. <laughs> Maybe you know this experientially today because at some point you've received very poor verbal instructions about how to do something, like a task, right? And what do you do in those instances? Well, you pull up YouTube, right? And you look up a tutorial at how to, and you watch a video, 
Because that's so much more helpful. And, and, and even Ikea has picked up on this principle. They've gotten rid of all the words, the only pictures in their manual instructions, right? Like, this is precisely what Paul did for the Corinthians. And, and he would go on even later in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1 to say, Again, this time with a helpful addition, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. You see, that's helpful uh, addition, isn't it? Just to be clear, we're not called to imitate everything about one another, preferences, hairstyle, mannerisms, thankfully, right? No, we rather are to imitate that which reflects the character of Christ in others. But that means we need to be close. This is Hebrews 13, verse 7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. That's the essence of the command here. So let me ask you, Christian, disciple, a disciple of Christ, do you have men and women in your life close enough to do this with? It's not an option. You don't have a choice. It's a command. It's a command. But notice next, not just the command to imitate, but also the consistency of this command modeled for us by the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 17. This is so convicting, right? For this reason, he says, I've sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. You see, Paul was so consistent in his living out of his life of discipleship. How consistent? Well, notice. It is amazing to me here that Paul tells them, maybe you picked up on this while we were reading, Paul tells them to imitate him. And then for that reason, he sends them Timothy. Isn't that interesting? What, what does that tell us about how well Timothy had mimicked Paul? How consistent Paul was to replicate himself. And in fact, in another context, Philippians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul describes Timothy this way, for I have no one else of kindred spirit. I love that word. It's literally same soul who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. That's how successfully and consistently Timothy was discipled by Paul so that in order for the Corinthians to imitate Paul, all they had to do was look at Timothy. And they would be accurately reminded of Paul's ways, he says here. But, but, but notice, not only was Paul's life consistently modeled before Timothy, look, look at what he says at the end of verse 17, just as I teach everywhere in every church. You see how consistent Paul was? Not just before Timothy, his beloved son in the faith, but everywhere he went. Paul's life was so consistent, he was the same wherever he went in every area of his life, in every ministry he performed. He was the same towards the Corinthians as he was toward Timothy as he was in every church. 
And so the question to us this morning is, beloved, are you able to say that of yourself to others? If you were to call others to imitate you, would you be able to say that if they were to follow you around and imitate you in your work and imitate you in your uh, in your home life, imitate you with your kids, imitate you on vacation, would it be the same? Would it be consistent? We learn here that discipleship relationships involve then not only mutual loving instruction, but also close and consistent imitation. Do you have relationships like this in the church? Excel still more. Excel still more. And lastly, notice we can observe a third essential element here, and that is this discipleship relationships not only involve instruction and imitation, but they also will sometimes involve intervention for sin. Look, this is only, um, this only makes sense, right? It's, it's the, if you get that close to somebody... Inevitably, you will see sin and they will see sin. Uh, Look at this, verses 18 through 21, Paul writes, Now some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? You see, as I said already, the Corinthian church had a, had a lot of issues, and we see that um, reflected in what Paul has to say to, him, to them here. You see, one of the occupational hazards to discipleship is having sin exposed. And when, when that happens true Christians, true disciples of Christ will intervene. That's what you learn here. Again, Dever writes in his little discipling book, he says, sometimes discipling requires you to warn someone about the choices he or she is making. Part of being a Christian is recognizing that sin deceives us and we need others, other believers to help us see the things we cannot see about ourselves, right? We, we all have blind spots. That's why we need one another. And so then he says, this new sins become visible in the course of our discipling relationships. That's exactly right. And so if you're going to get into the flow of discipleship, you should expect Christian, this to happen to you, and you should expect that you will be doing this for others. Do you think of the Christian life in this way? We're always to be helping one another with sin. That's the grace of body life. May we not be surprised. Like, no church is perfect, we're all made up of sinners. And the closer you get to sinners, guess what you see? Sin. And God says we're to help one another with that. But there are ways that we should go about this, right? There are some requirements I want to draw out here just as we end um, for this kind of intervention to actually be helpful. And we'll just pull out very quickly four of these to be precise, 
first notice, this kind of intervention for sin demands close proximity. It demands close proximity. Look at verses 18 and 19. Now, some of you, Paul says, have become arrogant, and you notice the language, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon. What is Paul, what is Paul doing here? What can we conclude from this? Isn't it interesting that Paul assumes that sin thrives where there is no fellowship or accountability? Haven't you found this to be true in your life? This is just one reason why when people start to pull away from the body of Christ, distance themselves from the church, as elders, we get concerned. Because Proverbs 18.1 tells us that he who separates himself, isolates, seeks his own desire, and he quarrels against all sound wisdom. Listen, sin is one of those things that cannot be dealt with at a distance. It's why Jesus said in Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins, don't just sit back and, and you know, throw comments out to him. Go, he says, and show him his fault in private, literally between you and him alone. Here, Paul models that for us. He says, I'm coming. I'm coming. Dear church, are you Here's the question for us this morning then. Are you in the habit of going to one another? Are you in the habit of moving towards or away from one another? Because true Christian discipleship demands close proximity. We need to be around each other in order to help one another. Social distancing is not good spiritually. So first, we see that the intervention for sin demands close proximity. Second, intervention for sin, we see, depends on God's sovereignty. We we have to put this here. And we're not just inserting it. Notice, it's actually here. We see this reflected in what seems to be just this obligatory passing statement in the middle of verse 19. Did you notice it? But But I will come to you soon. Here it is. And we say it all the time. If the Lord wills. That is not a throwaway statement. Even though Paul had his plans, he still acknowledged the fact that God was the one who would ultimately direct his steps even in this act of intervention. Beloved, do you believe that in relationships? You know, I think the danger is sometimes if we don't, we'll try to force something to happen. And we all know that's not a good route to go. There are times when we do everything right in a discipleship relationship, and guess what? Nothing happens. Have you ever experienced that? It's a reminder that you're not in control of that. There are also times, beloved, when we seem to do everything wrong, and yet, by God's grace and mercy, He sovereignly moves to grow an individual. Aren't you thankful for that too? It's the same reminder. Discipleship relationships, any relationship, spiritual relationship, it depends on God's sovereignty. We must trust the sovereign work of God in the hearts of others as we seek to minister to them. Paul has already told the Corinthians this. You just peek back, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. You remember the language there is, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? 
we're just servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth, right? Dear church, we must conclude then that God is the one who makes these kinds of relationships fruitful in the body of Christ, in the family of God. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it, Psalm 127, verse 1. So the intervention for sin that is sometimes required in discipleship relationships demands close proximity. It depends on God's sovereignty. And third, it also must discern spiritual reality. What do I mean by that? Discern spiritual reality. Look at the end of verse 19 and verse 20. Paul says, look, I'm coming to you, and when I come, I will find out, or the word here is I will know, that's discern, not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, you could say words only, but in power. What what is going on here? What is Paul saying to them? You see, Paul's concern was for true spiritual change and growth in the Corinthians. That's what he means when he's looking for power or ability when he comes to them. Not mere lip service or fancy talking, which is what he means by words in this context, right? In fact, back in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Paul had already established this contrast between the impotence of mere words persuasive, fancy language, and the power of God that actually moves to minister and create true biblical change and fruit, right? And, this, and he's bringing that up here to simply say this, in discipleship relationships, when we are intervening because of sin, we need to learn to discern true spiritual reality, not just, hey, I've repented, have you really repented? Is there true life change? Is the power of God display on your life in victory over sin as opposed to just, I'm able to talk the talk? Paul says he was coming to them to discern, to know if they were just talking a big game or if they were really producing spiritual fruit because he knew that words meant very little without the power of God to produce sanctification. And this Beloved, is what you and I then as Christians in the church need to also be able to discern anytime we find ourselves in a relationship where we're required to intervene for sin. Beloved, it doesn't matter how much theology this person can spout off to you. That doesn't mean they're godly or mature. You will know them by their fruits. Without real spiritual power demonstrated in their life, words mean very little. Why? Notice, because the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. So, beloved, true and effective intervention for sin in our relationships must learn to measure or discern spiritual realities because we want real holiness, not just talk of holiness. So, Christian, can you tell the difference? This morning, can you tell the difference in your own life first? 
And then when you spend time with each other, are you able to truly help one another with your sins or do you just talk a big game? So the intervention that is sometimes required in discipleship demands close proximity. It depends on God's sovereignty. It discerns spiritual reality. You're thinking, what's the last D word, right? Uh, Lastly, it also desires teachability. Notice verse 21. What do you desire? Paul asks, shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? See, Paul ends this chapter by putting the decision before the Corinthians, by really putting the ball in their court as to how they want him to come to them. And you see, in in many ways, when sin is exposed in us and intervention is needed, God tells us that the severity of his discipline, in one sense, is up to us and how we choose to respond. Did you ever find that to be true? Even as parents, right? for that child who's broken and contrite, the, the discipline is gentle. But, but for the one who hardens and digs in his heels, it's the exact op- opposite. And that's the principle we find here. And we are to desire that, that they rather be teachable then stiffen their necks. The principle is this, the more you soften, the gentler the correction, the more you stiffen, the harden the correction. Look, God is opposed to the proud, right? And he gives grace to the humble. And so for the Corinthians, if they were to continue in their pride, Paul says here, he would have come to them with a rod. But if they humbled themselves and became teachable, which was much more to be desired, Paul would come to them with love and a spirit of gentleness. The question is this morning then, what do you desire when intervention for sin is necessary? In your relationships in the church, listen, how do you want those interventions for sin to go? with someone else, and then also ask the question for yourself. We should desire teachability and not stubborn pride. So we learn from the Apostle Paul, this is how we ought to approach relationships. Do you have, again, do you have people in this body, in this family, who can do these things for you? The intervention for sin that is sometimes required in discipleship relationships then demands close proximity, depends on God's sovereignty, discerns spiritual reality, and desires teachability. Have you loved your brothers and sisters enough, Christian, to intervene when you see sin in their life? Are you close enough to anyone for that to actually happen? Let us not merely talk about discipleship, but let us also put it into practice. Listen, I I hope this this brief study and picture into the Apostle Paul's life and heart is is a help to us as a church. I I hope we can be a church that strives to, to foster these kinds of relationships. I know it's happening here, and I love it, and I'm so encouraged. But just to borrow from Carrie's language, who borrowed it from Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, 
may we excel still more, church. And you back out of this and you think instruction, imitation, intervention. Look, that just sounds like the Christian life lived in community, right? And that, that's all that it is. Discipleship is not a formal program that churches put in place with a specific time and all of that. It, while those can be helpful, what we find out here is that here, all, all it is is learning from one another, living alongside each other, and loving each other enough to speak to one another about sin. How are we doing, Twin City Bible Church? May we excel still more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text and for the Apostle Paul's example, not just in writing, but his life recorded for us in Scripture. What a conviction it is to our hearts, for we live in such an independent age. Lord, we think of ourselves wrongly at times as autonomous human beings. We rely too often on our own self and our own resources. Lord, forgive us for that. We're reminded by texts like these that we need one another. The body of Christ is a grace. So, Lord, help us to do that. Help us to do this for one another. And, Father, we cannot move on without praying for those who've never learned Christ to begin with. Lord, for those who aren't your disciples, surely they are a disciple of Satan. They, they have not come to realize their need for Christ. Lord, open their eyes this morning. Work in their hearts, we pray. Teach them the gospel. May they learn of their need for a Savior. And may you, they look to you for only a righteousness which you can provide. Father, we thank you again for gathering of your people, and we ask that you would seal these things to our hearts, that we may be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.